0: Please follow along as I read Isaiah 65, verses 17 through 25. God speaking through the prophet Isaiah says, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy, and her people to be a gladness. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer, and while they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we believe that the Scriptures were given for revelation. They were given also for salvation. We pray, Lord, that you would do a work now revealing yourself to us, your plans to us, through your word. Uh, that this would be used of you for the good of our souls. We pray, Lord, that you would thrill us with the hope of the world to come. We pray, Father, that you would motivate us now to persevere by faith as we await the new heavens and the new earth. Help us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. On Christmas Day, 1863, the poet Henry Wadsworth Longfellow penned his poem, I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day. He did so from his home in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Longfellow was the husband of Fanny and the father of six children, one of whom a daughter died tragically as an infant. Two years earlier, in July of 1861, Longfellow awoke from a nap to the sound of Fanny's shrieking cries of pain and agony. His wife had accidentally caught her dress on fire. And Longfellow ran into the room to find her consumed in flames. He tried to rescue his wife, he even threw a rug on top of her to put out the flames, but sadly, the burns she suffered were so severe, they would claim her life the following day. Longfellow himself suffered serious burns in the incident, and he was required to be in the hospital during his wife's funeral. Earlier in 1863, two years after Fanny had died, and as America was engulfed in a civil War. Longfellow's oldest son, Charles Appleton Longfellow, ran away from home, unbeknownst to his father, and joined up with President Lincoln's Union Army. Though his father tried to use his influence to shield his son from combat by securing for him a promotion to officer, he ultimately failed, Charles would indeed see battle. On December 1st, 1863, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow received the news that his son had been shot through the shoulder it was feared that he would die or at least be paralyzed for the rest of his life on christmas day 1863 wadsworth felt no christmas cheer instead he sat at his desk entirely broken and sought to express his feelings of grief and sadness that morning longfellow had heard the christmas bells pealing in cambridge and he heard the singing of luke 2:14 peace on earth good to men. He had lost a daughter, he had lost his wife two years earlier, and now feared he was losing a son. His nation was being ravaged by the bloodiest conflict it had yet endured, the war that would leave behind a death toll of 600,000 men. And it was Christmas Day. And Longfellow composed a poem to capture the dissonance he felt in his heart. I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play, and mild and sweet the words repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men, and thought how as the day had come, the belfries of all Christendom had rolled along the unbroken song of peace on earth, goodwill to men, till ringing, singing on its way, the world revolved from night to day, A voice, a chime, a chant sublime of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Then from each black accursed mouth, the cannon thundered in the south. And with the sound, the carols drowned of peace on earth, goodwill to men. It was as if an earthquake rent the hearthstones of a continent and made forlorn the households born of peace on earth. Goodwill to men. And in despair I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said. For hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail with peace on earth. Goodwill to men. Those words from Luke 2.14 were originally announced on the occasion of the birth of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who came into the world to save His people from their sins. They were announced because the angels and the prophets of old and some among the Jewish people knew that the Christ had come not only to save His people from their sins, but indeed to remake the entire world. The Messiah had come to make global peace, to fill the earth with the knowledge of the glory of God, and to make a new heavens and a new earth, to inaugurate a new creation. That's what the prophet Isaiah is speaking of in Isaiah 65, 17 through 25. In this final Advent message from Isaiah, I'd like to consider in Isaiah's depiction of the new heavens and the new earth, uh, what we learn there. We see in this passage, Christmas secures for us a picture of the new heavens and the new earth. Christ came to remake the world. He inaugurates this new creation in His first coming. It will finally be consummated and fulfilled in His second coming. And I wish for you to know you here who are Christians, that however sad you are this Christmas, however broken, however discouraged, however sorrowful, however lonely, however hopeless, I want you to know that your Savior and your Lord will indeed bring about a new heaven, a new earth, a new and perfect world, and you will see it, and you will walk in it. This morning, I want to expound this passage, and I want to apply it to you who are Christians to serve your encouragement and your perseverance, and your hope. Christmas brings a new and perfect world. Four observations from this passage. We'll spend most of our time on the first two. Point number one, this new and perfect world is described as a new heavens and a new earth. This new and perfect world is described as a new heavens and a new earth. Look at verse 17. The Lord says, for behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. Israel's redemption and ours would not come through things going back to the way they were. God announces that He is going to do something wholly new. And what He is going to do, the salvation He is going to bring, it will involve a total renovation of the world. Uh, This is a promise greater and grander than anything Israel could have hoped for or imagined, and it is described in terms of a new heavens and a new earth. One of the most widespread misrepresentations of Christian teaching in the last century or two has been the idea that the afterlife for Christians will amount to a sort of ethereal and immaterial existence, what will sort of just float around from cloud to cloud, uh, disembodied souls. For some reason, the picture that comes to my mind is watching the old Looney Tunes cartoons. Uh, Whenever one of those characters would die, like Wiley the Coyote would get blown up by dynamite or something like that, and then he'd turn into a kind of phantom and his ghost-like presence would ascend or something like that, and that was kind of the picture. That caricature of the afterlife has been repeated in countless books and shows and movies in our culture over the years. But of course, the Bible never teaches anything like that at all. The hope for the Christian is never cast in terms of an ethereal, immaterial kind of existence. Rather, our hope is always cast in terms of resurrection life, of a resurrection existence, of a material resurrected body, of a new material world, of a real city, of a new heavens and a new earth. This is one of the most underappreciated implications of the incarnation, I think. Jesus, you understand, in taking on a human body, coming in material form and taking on matter actually sanctifies matter, sanctifies the material, and sanctifies the body. Jesus Himself rose with a resurrected body and will forever possess a material resurrected human body. He is one with our flesh forever. And as He has risen to resurrection life, so will we. And the resurrection life we will experience in the new heavens and the new earth will be a fully renovated material world that is in every way perfect. And we will see with physical eyes. And we will touch with physical hands. We will feel the cool grass under our feet, and we'll see the streets of the new Jerusalem blazing in golden glory, and we'll hear the voices of the saints and the angels crying aloud in praise to God. Ours will be a fully embodied material existence. I'll tell you a fascinating study to do next time you read the book of Revelation. I'll just read the book of Revelation uh, through the lens of your five senses. Read the book of Revelation and ask yourself, there in that world, what will I hear? What will I see? What will I smell? What will I taste? What will I touch? We will experience sensory stimuli and sensory delight in the new heavens and the new earth. We will experience resurrection life at the second coming when Christ raises the dead and remakes the world. But you may be thinking, okay, then that's the resurrection. Who knows when that's coming. What about when we die? What happens then? Well, the Bible appears to teach that when you Christian die, your body will rest in the grave and your spirit will go to be with Christ. Theologians call this the intermediate state, and we know almost nothing about it. The Bible says very little about it. But what's clear is that the intermediate state is not the goal. It's not our hope. It's not our inheritance. It's described as sleeping. It's described as sowing. It's described as waiting. And it's here I want to drive home a very important point. The ultimate hope for the Christian is not dying now. It's rising then. The Bible doesn't want to dazzle you with thoughts about the glories and pleasures of the intermediate state. In fact, the Bible barely talks about it. The Bible rather wants to dazzle you with thoughts about the glories and pleasures of the resurrection and the life to come, of the new heavens and the new earth, which Isaiah speaks of here. Isaiah includes glorious descriptions of what life then will be like and what blessings will be ours in the new heavens and the new earth, some that we'll see in just a moment. But a quick comment at this point about these descriptions themselves of the world to come. Uh, I've studied the major resurrection passages, uh, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, more than ever in the last year. I've preached on some of them. Some of you may remember those messages. And something that has stood out to me is how often uh, various individual features and pleasures and experiences that will define that world are identified and expounded and celebrated in order to encourage Christians in perseverance. An incorruptible and immortal body. The material beauty of the new Jerusalem, the streets of gold, the glory of the company of the redeemed when all gathered together. Even the details of the clothes that we'll be wearing, the prominence of the jewelry the laughter and the joy and the mirth of it all, no more crying, no more sorrow, no more sin. These are all descriptions we're given again and again and again of what the world to come will be like. And sometimes you will meet with Christians who think it's somehow wrong or somehow it's just not right to think too much on these things. Because if I'm thinking about my resurrected body, and the streets of gold, or the fact that I'll be free from chronic pain, or the fact that I won't cry ever again, well, then I'm not thinking about Christ, and I'm thinking about my own pleasure, and I've become a kind of heavenly materialist, and I've just sort of spoiled it all. You meet Christians like this. I shouldn't think too much about the gifts, about the blessings that are coming. Uh, The more I think about it, I think those kinds of Christians need to get a grip. Uh, That is my pastoral opinion. Friends, just read the passages themselves. God wants you to think all the time about how awesome and wonderful the world to come is going to be. He wants you to think about how good the music's going to sound. He wants you to think about how glorious the streets of gold will be. He wants you to think about the pleasures of the new world and what you will experience in a resurrected and sinless and perfect body. He wants it to be a leading motivator for you, like a carrot in front of a horse. And he doesn't seem to be overly concerned that you will somehow divorce the gifts from the giver. We get worried about this, right? Well, I'm thinking too much about how great heaven's going to be, then I'm not thinking about Jesus anymore, and, you know, I've kind of messed up the whole thing. I just appeal to you, parents or grandparents, you're going to give gifts to your children perhaps, or maybe you already have, or whatever your tradition is. If I I give my, my little boy a red fire truck, what do I want my little boy to do? I want him to enjoy the red fire truck. What I don't want him to do is have this very complicated internal battle over whether or not he can enjoy the red fire truck. I don't want him to, like, play with the red fire truck for a second and look back up at me who gave him the gift, and look, okay, he gave this to me, okay, all right. Okay, I was forgetting for a second that he gave it to me right? now, what do you want your child to do? Enjoy the gift I've given you. That's why I gave it to you. That's how these promises are meant to function. These promises of what a glorious world would be like. God wants us to enjoy these things. Of course, He wants us to enjoy them with Him and in Him and through Him, but He wants us to enjoy them nonetheless. And He wants us to think about how great they'll be and how good God is for giving these things to us. Friends, it would have been a good and godly thing we're believing Israelites in captivity to see their situation and think, one day it won't be like this. God is going to bring us into a new heavens and a new earth. It's a good thing for Christian exiles and sojourners in this hostile world to think on the heavenly country that's coming. One day we'll finally be home. It's a good thing for people who are sick and tired of their sin to think there's coming a world when we will sin and be sinned against no more. It's a good and godly thing for people afflicted with paralysis and osteoporosis or cancer or depression or a thousand other maladies to hope in a resurrected body. It's a good thing for people who grieve now over miscarriages, wayward children, difficult marriages, the loss of those we held so dear suicide, oppression, betrayal, abandonment, loneliness, and abuse to hope in the world to come where sorrow will be no more and every tear will be wiped away. It's a good thing for people living in a world convulsed by war and genocide and terrorism to think there's coming a world in which all war will cease and peace will reign. Christian, you should think about this all the time. And you should allow it to become a leading incentive in your life to persevere, to humbly wait on God, to resist sin, to put on Christ, to live for eternity because He has told you it's coming. Behold, I make new heavens and a new earth. One day it will be different. And one day in Christ it will be yours. And that should motivate you in the present. All right, point number two. Point number one, this new and perfect world is described as a new heavens and a new earth. Point number two, in this new and perfect world, God will consummate a perfect relationship between Him and His people. In this new and perfect world, God will consummate, bring to fulfillment. God will consummate a perfect relationship between Him and His people. Look at verse 18. But be glad... Rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. So here we see that God through Isaiah is speaking about Jerusalem. Remember what I said last week, those of you who were here. Isaiah is casting his prophecy in terms his audience can understand. He's using categories... Temporal categories to describe eternal reality. So when they hear Isaiah prophesy about what God is going to do for Jerusalem, it's possible many of those Jews would have thought in terms of the city of Jerusalem and the ethnic people of Israel and the restoration of the land and those kinds of things. But what we surely know now is that this is not a reference to the first Jerusalem, that is the small city in the Middle East. This is a reference to God's holy people who will be defined in the New Testament in terms of the church and who will indeed inherit the whole earth, indeed a new earth. This Jerusalem will be a people made up of redeemed men and women from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. And I know this because this is how the New Testament speaks of the church. As Paul says in Romans 9 verse 7, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. In Galatians 3.7, he says, it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And Paul in Galatians 4 speaks of how the first Jerusalem was just a shadow of the Jerusalem to come. What he calls the Jerusalem above that belongs to all those who believe. You don't want the first Jerusalem. He associates the first Jerusalem with slavery, the coming Jerusalem with freedom in Christ. That is the Jerusalem that comes from above. The author to the Hebrews speaking to the church says in Hebrews 12, 22, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. In Revelation 21, John just comes out and says it. He equates the new heavens and the new earth with the new Jerusalem itself, which comes out of heaven, we're told, like a bride adorned for her husband. And we're told that in the new Jerusalem there in Revelation 21, the redeemed from the nations will be there. Indeed, the new heavens and the new earth themselves will be called the new Jerusalem. It's another way of speaking of heaven itself. What we see is that Jesus and the New Testament writers regard we who are God's people, we who have been born again, we who are members of the new covenant, we who have been washed by the blood of Christ, we who are the children of Abraham by faith. We are the true Jerusalem, the true Israel of God. Now raise your hand. Uh, if you know who Ben Shapiro is, who are who Ben Shapiro is? Okay, a lot of you, Daily Wire, Jewish guy. If you're a Christian, what you must appreciate is that this passage has more to do with you than with him. He's an ethnic Jew, does not embrace Jesus Christ. You are one son or daughter of Abraham who has believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, Israel's Messiah to the saving of your soul. You are the true Israel of God. We are the Jerusalem being spoken of here. This should inform the way we read these prophecies in Isaiah and these glorious promises made to the Jerusalem to come. And we see these splendid promises about what theologians call eschatological Jerusalem, that is to say the Jerusalem to come. We should understand these promises as finding their fulfillment in the church. That is certainly the case in this passage. This is about the true Jerusalem of God, the people of God. And this is about God consummating a perfect relationship between Him and us. And so we read verse 18, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem, that's us, to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. And I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. God is talking here about the pleasure He will take in us. Just appreciate what He's saying. It's one thing to say God will make Jerusalem His people to have joy. He will certainly do that. But that's not what He says here. Instead He says He will create Jerusalem to be a joy, which is something even more profound I think. God's people, we're told in this passage, who had been so disappointed, so disobedient, so rebellious, adulterous, idolatrous, this people will bring joy to God. They will bring gladness to Him. He says, verse 19, I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in My people. Isaiah is anticipating a day when God's relationship with His covenant people will be marked not by rebellion and tension and failure and disobedience and disappointment as it had been in former times, as it had been so long with Israel. But when He brings the new heavens and the new earth, when He creates this new situation, God will look upon His people and they will bring Him nothing but joy, nothing but delight, nothing but gladness to God. Now, this is amazing. I want you to think about this. Joy, joy could have a particular quality or purity about it. True enough, Right? Joy can have a particular quality or purity about it, and joy can vary by degrees. The joy of my children when jumping in a mud puddle is not the same quality as the joy my wife and I experience when walking through Westminster Abbey or King's College in Cambridge. There is more for joy's palate there than in the mud. So we might say, the quality of joy rises with the quality of joy's object. The quality of joy rises with the quality of that upon which we set our joy, the purity, the quality of that object. The greater the object, the greater the joy. Uh, this idea interests you. You can read about it in the beginning of C.S. Lewis's book, The Weight of Glory. Simply put, greater things can be more greatly enjoyed, more truly enjoyed, more purely enjoyed. Of course, they aren't always more greatly enjoyed, which is the product of sin. In a sense, the very essence of sin is not loving and enjoying God, that greatest of all objects, as he ought to be loved and enjoyed. But the fact that some don't love and enjoy God as they ought does not alter the fact that human experience will allow of no greater, deeper, and richer joy than to know and love God and to be known and loved by God. That's what I'm saying when I say the quality of joy rises with the quality of joy's object. Joy is greatest when it sets itself on the greatest object, which is God. So you get this. Everybody understand the principle. The principle quality of joy rises with the quality of joy's object okay but here's something else we might say also the quality of the object enjoyed thing that's being enjoyed the quality of the object enjoyed rises with the quality of the one doing the enjoying the quality of the object enjoyed rises with the quality of the one doing the enjoying. Let me illustrate it this way. Imagine that you're a world-class musician. You play the cello. I love the cello, okay? Uh, If you play the cello, please come talk to me. I want to talk about getting you up here on the platform to help with our music. love the cello, but I don't know how to play the cello. I'm an amateur. Imagine that you come into the sanctuary and in the place of the pulpit you have set up you're a cello for a performance, you're playing to this room, and you play uh, box uh, cello suite number one in G major. That is the. <coughs> and I sit in, you finish, and I say, Wow, that was fantastic. That might mean something to you, it might say something of the quality of what you just did, but I'm an amateur. I don't play the cello. I have no idea how to assess the technical brilliance of a cellist. It would mean more if Yo-Yo Ma sat on the front row and at the end of your performance stood on his chair and applauded and said, I've never heard that more sweetly played and I delight in what you just did. You see, it dignifies and seems to increase the quality of the object enjoyed because of the quality of the one doing the enjoying. It's yo-yo ma appreciating what you've done. That must really say something about the beauty and the value and the quality of what just happened on this platform. The quality of the object enjoyed rises with the quality of the one doing the enjoying. Well, friends, if in the new heavens and the new earth, we are so delighted in by God How worthy and delightful and beautiful we must truly be. If God is the enjoyer of me, how worthy and glorious I must be. Because God doesn't take pleasure in worthless things. Now hold it right there. Let's be clear. That's not meant to stroke your ego. You didn't make yourself lovely. You didn't make yourself worthy. Jerusalem did not make herself to be a joy. A metamorphosis has to take place. Kids, do you know what the word metamorphosis means? A metamorphosis is to change one thing into something completely different that it wasn't before. Not like a reformation or a slight alteration, it's a metamorphosis. It was something, now it's something else. That's what needs to happen to you and me if we are going to be delighted in by God in this way. And we don't affect the metamorphosis. Notice the text says, I, God, will make Jerusalem to be a joy. Not a joy right now. She's playing the whore with the pagan nations. But I will change things. I will make her lovely. God will make His people to be a joy. God will wash us, and He will cleanse us, and He will make us to look like His Son. Brothers and sisters, if we look like His Son, we will be lovely indeed, and worthy of His delight and joy. I've long cherished this sentence from Martin Luther. He says, the love of God does not find, but creates that which is pleasing to it. The love of God looks on me a sinner, does not find me lovely, does not find me an object worthy of His love, makes me an object worthy of His love. The love of God does not find, but creates that which is pleasing to it. Brothers and sisters, God will make us so lovely and so beautiful and so worthy. Appreciate this. He will make us so lovely and beautiful and worthy that it will not dishonor His perfect being and nature to delight in us. And it will not denigrate His glory for Him to consummate a perfect relationship with us. God's going to do this in this passage against the backdrop of all of Israel's rebellion and sin. The city that had abandoned God's law that had committed adultery with the world, that had worshipped false gods, that same city will undergo such a change as to become the object of God's special joy. And that change in redemptive history would require the coming of Israel's Messiah, His incarnation, His death on the cross, and His resurrection. And it would require the preaching of the gospel unto the whole world and the inclusion of the nations by faith. But Jerusalem, God's people, would be made lovely. Let me ask just briefly, turn to Isaiah 62. Isaiah 62. I'm thankful to my sister Ruthie Hysaw for reminding me of this passage a couple of weeks ago. It's just, it's just unbelievable. Isaiah 62, verse 1. God says, for Zion's sake I will not keep silent and for Jerusalem's sake I will not be quiet. Now remember, this is us. This is the church, again, mediated through the events of redemptive history. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. For Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet. Until her righteousness goes forth as brightness, and her salvation as a burning torch. The nations shall see your righteousness, and all the kings your glory. And you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord. A royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more be termed forsaken. And your land shall no more be termed desolate. But you shall be called my delight is in her. And your land married. For the Lord delights in you. And your land shall be married. Look at verse 11. Behold, the Lord has proclaimed to the ends of the earth. Say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your salvation comes. Behold, His reward is with them and His recompense before Him. And they shall be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. And you shall be called sought out, a city not forsaken. Friends, this is us. The Lord will consider us the object of His delight. He will seek us out. The name He will give us, His bride is, my delight is in her. Emmanuel, we need to be more comfortable with the idea that God really does delight in us. And that delight will be consummated in a perfect marriage between us and His Son. And He intends to shower on us all His delight and love and favor and affection and tenderness for all eternity. God, through the sending of His Son, has made this to be. Friends, will that help you persevere by faith in the coming year? To know that God has made a new world. He intends for you to walk in it. And you will be the apple of His eye, the object of His joy. His delight will be in you. All right, point number three, more quickly now. This new and perfect world is described as a new heavens and a new earth. In this new and perfect world, God will consummate a perfect relationship between Him and His people. Thirdly, in this new and perfect world, sorrow will give way to joy. In this new and perfect world, sorrow will give way to joy. Look at verse 17 again. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, listen, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. The former thing shall not be remembered, he says, or come into mind. Now, what does that mean? Don Carson says in commentary on this verse that in the world to come, there will be no PTSD. Think about this for Israel first. How painful and traumatic their memories are must have been. And how their memories, their history would make them ashamed. And how they would become disheartened and defeated as they thought upon their past unfaithfulness, God's judgments upon them. So much in their past they had to regret. And so much of their present pain and sorrow was connected to their past sins and their past failures, but friends, it's like this for many of God's people today. Uh, I think many even here would say that the hardest thing about continuing to live in this world is not some sort of present difficulty or something that's looming in the future. It's the things in your past that you cannot change, but here we read in Isaiah's prophecy The former things shall not be remembered or come into mind, which I take to mean your sinfulness, your betrayals, your failures, the sins of others committed against you, past traumas, painful and dark things in your experience, in like your memory banks. They will not be remembered and will not come into mind in the new heavens and the new earth. I don't know exactly how that's going to work. I certainly don't think it means we're going to get hit with the men in black stick and just have our memories (laughs) erased, have sort of holy heavenly amnesia. But I think it does mean that past sin, past trauma, past pain, past sadness, past regret, so much a part of human experience will no longer be able to reach forth into the present and harm us and hurt us. The former things will not be remembered in the world to come, whether it's sins we've committed or sins that have been committed against us, painful things, hurtful things, dark things. In the new heavens and the new earth, the past will not be painful or traumatic or complicated for us. The burden and pain of the past will not be able to reach us there. The former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. Verse 18, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. Second half of verse 19, no more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. The picture you see of sorrow giving way to joy. I was talking to Pastor Ben in my study about two hours ago. And we were talking about how hard the year has been. Some of us have cried more in 2023 than we have in any other year. And for many of us, this has been a year of weeping, a year of tears, a year of distress. Now, well, friends, the world is full of these. But one day, these will be the former things. God will make a new heavens and a new earth. And in that world, we will never have anything to cry over ever again. Only joy and only gladness all the time. Now, the picture of joy and gladness continues as we read on. Verse 21, if you look there. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. Again, I just think Isaiah is speaking in categories, metaphorical categories to explain how joy-filled this time will be. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of My people be, and My chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. This language is meant to evoke the idea of prosperity and flourishing, of satisfaction and gladness. We will be so happy there, and nothing will be permitted to impair our happiness. Christian, I just encourage you, this Christmas Eve, there is coming a day when your sorrow will give way to joy. It's coming. Wait for it. Persevere in the hope of it. Right now, we're in the middle of the night. But the dawn is coming, and the sun will rise, and we will be so glad. All right, point number four as we draw to a close. Point number four, in this new and perfect world, death will give way to life. In this new and perfect world, death will give way to life. Look at verse 20. In the new heavens and the new earth, we read verse 20, no more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old, and the sinner a hundred years old shall be a curse. Okay, now how you understand these verses will depend in part on your eschatology. If you don't understand what I talk about for the next three or four minutes, that's fine. You can be saved by the grace of God and be happy in Jesus and never know anything about what I'm about to say. If you are amillennial in your eschatology, meaning you believe we're living in the millennium now, the millennium spoken of in Revelation 20, that is, then you would probably understand Isaiah 65-20 simply to be painting the idea of sort of eternal longevity using the temporal categories of a long life or a life well-lived. Isaiah is using evocative metaphorical language and making use of certain categories ready at hand to evoke the idea of eternal life. So, he doesn't literally mean, you know, infants will live out their days and die, he's saying, kids aren't going to die anymore. It's going to be eternal life, would be sort of the idea. A similar statement you find uh, all over the prophets, really, but in Zechariah 8, it talks about the coming glory, the new heavens and the new earth, and it talks about how uh, the, the old man and the old woman will sit out on their steps and there will be children at play and they will do so not in fear. Well, I don't think there'll be little children and old people in that sense in heaven. Uh, what's the idea? You're not going to be afraid of anything in the new heavens and the new earth. And Zechariah is using a word picture to sort of get that idea across. That's how our millennials would understand this. If you are historic pre-mill, meaning you understand Revelation 20 to speak of a literal thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth before the last judgment, then you would easily I suppose just tuck Isaiah 65, 20 into the millennium, In the millennium that the kids won't die young. and people will live out their years on the earth and the wicked will be destroyed. If you're post-millennial, uh, well, to the two of you, uh, no, that was a joke, there's really only one of you. No, I'm kidding. I was of the three standard millennial views, I find post-millennialism to be the most implausible and most problematic exegetically. But post millennius, I suppose, would view the thousand year reign in Revelation twenty as referring to a kind of golden age before Christ returns, and I would imagine they would just fit Isaiah sixty five twenty into that golden age. This is what life will be like in that golden age before Christ returns. Well, how should we understand this passage in reference to the millennium? I don't know. And at the risk of sounding snarky, I don't care. It has literally nothing to do with Isaiah's point here. Isaiah is asserting a very simple and basic point. In the new heavens and the new earth, life prevails over death. And no matter how your eschatology works, you will recognize that the life spoken of here finds its culmination, at least, in eternal life. That's Isaiah's simple point. So, Isaiah further illustrates this idea of death giving way to life and speaking of the cessation of all violence and strife. And he does so with striking word pictures here. Look at verse 25. Uh, Kids, if you know how to read, look on in the Bible, Isaiah 65, verse 25. It says, the wolf and the lamb shall graze together. Do you know what grazing is? That means they're going to eat together. Do you know what happens, kids, if you put a wolf and a lamb in a room together? That's going to go really bad for one of them. (laughs) Wolf's going to eat the lamb. That's what wolves do, right? In the world to come, in the new heavens and the new earth, Isaiah says here, the wolf and the lamb are going to eat together. The one's not afraid of the other. The one's not trying to predate on the other. It's eating together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. Isn't that something? Well, what's the picture here? It's a picture of peace, right? In the animal kingdom, where bloodshed and alienation is so part of the state of things. As Alfred Lord Tennyson said, nature is red in tooth and claw. Not so for renewed nature for the world to come. There will be no bloodshed. Lions will eat straw. And dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountains. Says the Lord. Uh, This statement here, we actually read uh, earlier in Isaiah a similar passage. This is a recapitulation of something Isaiah said earlier in Isaiah chapter 11. You don't need to turn there, but I'll just read it aloud to you. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fatted calf together, and a little child shall lead them. You see the picture? It's like the whole animal kingdom, normally eating one another. A little child's going to have them all on a leash and they're going to peacefully play together in some kind of animal play date. And you, you let your littlest child lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. And the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den." Adder is a snake. Kids don't do that now, okay? What's the picture? You put a hand over the den of, of the snake, it's going to bite you, right? But in the new heavens the new earth, kids will do that without any fear. For some reason, I have in my head the, the game with the mallet and the hole, the gopher, whack-a-mole. Thank you. Thank you, James. Kids will play that kind of game with snakes in their holes. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. What's the simple picture? Isaiah is trying to spring these word pictures in our minds to help us see how different that world is going to be from the one we inhabit now. This world is marked by barbarism, by brutality. Nature is red in tooth and claw but the new and perfect world god will make that he will give to us the new jerusalem that comes down out of heaven like a bride adorned for her husband be no violence there no death there no conflict no strife death will give way to life friends this christmas remember that jesus came as he himself said to make all things new He came to inaugurate a kingdom that will have no end. He came to renovate the world and to make new heavens and a new earth, and to consummate a perfect marriage between Him and us. And in this new perfect world, sorrow will give way to joy and death will give way to life. And we will sing, no more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make His blessings flow far as the curse is found. The wrong will fail. The right prevail. When peace on earth, goodwill to men. And friends, we're to think all the time on this picture and others like it. And it should inform our hope and it should incentivize perseverance and it should raise the downtrodden and discourage and it should fill us with hope and with zeal and with new resolves to faithfulness. Day is coming, let's persevere, suffering and then glory, sorrow and then joy, death and then life. Behold, I am making all things new. And friends, I tell you, for all those who turn from their sin and trust in Christ, they will be given now the hope of eternal life with Christ in a new and perfect world. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we pray that the place our Savior is making for us would be more constant in our thoughts, and that we would meditate often on it, that we would look forward to it, that we would hope in our heavenly home with Christ forever. There He will be in the center of everything, and His gifts will flow from His throne, and we will be so glad. Father, we pray that this would shape our piety, that this would shape our day-to-day lives, that it would shape our marriages, that it would shape our families, that it would shape the way we think about our time and our money and our vocations, that it would shape what we do with our lives, knowing that the new heavens and the new earth is coming, and there you will set upon us your perfect delight and pleasure forevermore. May we be satisfied with this hope that is to come. May we labor for it. And in Christ, may we attain it. Under the glory of the Lord Jesus and the joy of our souls forever. We pray together in Jesus' name. Amen.